In the name of the Father, and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. When George Stevenson uh, graduated from seminary in Edinburgh, Scotland, he was immediately assigned to a little church way up in the highlands of Scotland. He hadn't been there uh, for two years when a crisis broke out uh, that threatened to divide the whole community there. It seemed that uh, before he had arrived, a tenant farmer in that community had been caught red-handed stealing from one of the neighbors. He was immediately convicted and sent off to the penitentiary. The landowner who had hired him, however, uh, continued to have a relationship uh, with this man. Um, He looked out for the man's wife and children while the man was in prison. And when it came time for that man to be paroled, um, he decided that this man had learned his lesson, that he would turn over a new leaf And so he agreed to give him his job back. He even uh, went so far as to be his sponsor with the parole board. But when this was announced, a furor broke out in the entire community. There were those uh, who said uh, this landowner had no right to bring a convicted criminal into the community. We'll never be able to sleep peacefully, they said. Uh, We'll have to lock our doors. Uh, This man showed his true colors years ago. Can the leopard really change his spots? Well, when this man did return, um, he was universally ostracized. No one but this compassionate landowner would have anything to do with him. All kinds of pressure was brought upon the landowner to force this man out of the community. And the thing that grieved Stevenson more than anything was that all the actors in this drama were members of his congregation, which meant that literally every Sunday, sitting in the pews, were this compassionate landowner, this man, his wife and children, and all the others uh, who were trying to subvert that process. As Stevenson thought about what was happening, it occurred to him that he was seeing, acted out right before his eyes, a portion of what Kathy just read to us from Matthew's Gospel. Do you remember that after Simon Peter made his breakthrough confession, acknowledging that Jesus was for him the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus said that on people with that kind of insight, he was going to build his church. To you, I will give the keys to the kingdom. And then those incredible words, what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And it dawned on this young minister that right there in this little community, uh, exactly what Jesus said was being acted out. You see, that compassionate landowner was trying to release this man from his bondage to the past. By his encouragement, by his working with him, he was trying to provide a new life for this man. On the other hand, those who didn't believe he could change, those who were trying to ostracize him and drive him out of the community, they were, in effect, binding this man. The very day that the words of Scripture 
began to illumine what was happening in that community was the day that Stevenson knew where he had to stand on this ongoing drama. Stevenson knew that he had to side with the man who was trying to loose this man and unfortunately against those who were trying to bind him. You see, the very essence of the Bible's portrayal of God is that God is always on the side of inviting us to change. In fact, I dare you to find any place in the entire scripture where God comes to a person and says, just stay the way you are. Remain frozen. Never change. From the very time God touched Abraham all the way through the ministry of Jesus, God is always on the side of loosing us from the past and freeing us for a different kind of future. And that young minister realized that he had to take the side found on hope and mercy rather than the other side. I think that kind of ministry is given to every one of us as part of his church. There is no better way to describe the gospel than to say simply, God is more interested in the future than the past. God has more concern for what you have it in you to become than the person that you were in days gone by. And it is that great coming together of mercy for the great behind and hope for the great not yet. It is with that kind of energy that we are given the possibility of moving hopefully into the future. There was a young man by the name of Arthur Gordon who learned this lesson very dramatically early on in his life. Gordon was a native of Savannah, Georgia, way back in the 1930s. He did something that very few people in that region uh, had done at that time. He received a scholarship to Yale University. Not a bad place to go. <laughs> he made his way up north, and for the next four years, he studied in that Ivy League setting, performed brilliantly, so much so that at the end of that four years, he was one of 24 people who were given a Rhodes Scholarship uh, to go to Oxford. And so for two years after that, he was able to study English literature in that setting. When he came back to this country, World War II was breaking out. He enlisted in the Air Force. But when that time of service was over, he got back together with some of his Ivy League colleagues. And together they gave birth to a dream that had frankly begun years ago in the bars of New Haven. Namely to start an avant-garde literary journal that would hopefully be the vehicle by which many young poets and young writers would find their way to national reputations. Arthur Gordon was given the job as editor of that journal. And so for the next two years, he worked endlessly to try to midwife this dream into existence. However, it turned out that Gordon was a better poet than a businessman. And though the journal was given considerable critical acclaim in two years, it had to fold for lack of funds, which meant that this young man in his late 20s found himself without work. 
He was personally responsible for several thousand dollars of debt. And to make matters even worse, his high school sweetheart back in Savannah, who he had every intention of marrying, got tired of the seemingly endless waiting. She broke off the engagement and, in fact, married somebody else soon afterwards. In a matter of weeks, days, really, Gordon's whole life had come crashing down on his head. It was his first significant encounter with failure, which, of course, is an important right to every one of us, but especially to this high-achieving Rhodes Scholar. He was used to the applause in his life from all of his achievements. He had no idea what to do when he so publicly and visibly failed. Well, it turned out to be more than he could handle. He became withdrawn. In fact, for days, he would lock himself in his room with the shades drawn. That eventually led to suicidal thoughts, which greatly concerned his family down south. So they came north, and they were instrumental in getting him to go and see an old counselor right there in New York City. So late one October afternoon, with the rain pouring down in New York, Gordon goes off to see this old counselor. He began to unpack his heart. He began to tell his story about his life had not been perfect, how it hadn't gone the way he had planned. And when he had finally spent himself, that old counselor said, you know, your story reminds me of some other patients that I have worked with. I wonder, would you be willing to listen to some of the excerpts of interviews I did with them? I have their permission to use some of their material. And so Gordon agreed. The counselor first put on a tape. It was a man's voice. It was a father who was realizing for the first time that something that he had done years earlier was now causing his son tremendous emotional problems. And he was so filled with anguish and pain, you could just hear it in the tone of his voice. The second tape, this was in the days of tapes, the second tape was a female voice. And she was realizing the part that she had played in the demise of her marriage. She was having to come to terms for the first time with many of the things she had done that had disrupted that union. And once again, she was filled with a tremendous sense of guilt. The third and the final tape was a business executive who apparently had not adequately researched an important decision. And as a result, his company had lost millions of dollars. He was about to lose his job. And he was so down on himself for not having done what obviously he should have. Well, at the end of that third tape, the counselor said, I'm wondering, do you hear any connecting threads in these stories? And the bright young Rhodes Scholar said, well, of course, in each, each in his or her own way is saying, if only I had done differently with the past. The doctor said, that's exactly right. 
And I want you to know that in each of these cases, I was instrumental in getting these people unstuck from where you hear them on this tape and getting them back to a more productive and joyful life. And in each case, the crucial thing was teaching them to substitute two different words for the words that you hear them using on these tapes. I taught them to say, next time, instead of if only. Just think about it. If only points to a part of our human experience that can never be altered. There is a frozenness about the past that no matter how intensely you feel about it, we cannot go back and undo and redo it. And therefore, energies that are spent lamenting the past are enemies, are energies largely wasted. Next time, on the other hand, points to the segment of life that is still fluid, open. We can still shape and mold the future in fresh and new ways if we are willing to take the things that we have learned from the past and not just lament them, but use them so that the next time we face a similar situation, we are wiser and more compassionate for it. Then, the memory of the past can become a resource in building a different kind of future. He said, I am willing to take you on as a patient. This will be our agenda. We will work to get from the top of your head to the bottom of your feelings, which is where real change takes place. This crucial shift from if only to next time. Well, it was the first thing that made any sense in a long time to this Rhodes Scholar. He agreed to submit himself to the process, and for the next several months, they worked to internalize this different way of remembering the past. Years later, Arthur Gordon said that that one lesson he learned from that counselor was finally of more practical help in the living of his life than everything he had learned at Yale and Oxford put together. I want to suggest to you that this is an exceedingly significant learning for every one of us. Is there an adult in this room who doesn't have a skeleton of regret in his or her past? Some way, as you look back at the days and nights that make up your story, that you would to God you would have done it differently. We all have these memories that cause us pain and anguish. But if we can learn not to stay stuck in lament, but to use those insights that we have gained in the service of a different kind of future, then you see, even our mistakes can become the occasion of blessing. It seems to me that this shift from if only to next time is at the very heart of the Christian gospel. If you will think about what you know about Jesus of Nazareth, is there any more significant way to describe his impact on people than to say he enabled them to turn from the cynicism, from the despair of if only, to the hope and creativity of next time. 
the very heart of the gospel is that God is more interested in the future than the past. God is more concerned with the person that you have in, in, in you to become than the person that you were. And the secret of binding and loosing has to do with whether we have heard that gospel for ourselves and then whether we have begun to do that gospel in relationship to other people. So that young Scottish minister realized if he was going to be doing the work that Jesus calls the church to do, he had to side with the one who was trying to loose that tenant farmer from the past and give him a different kind of future. Whenever we cynically decide that we cannot change or that others that we know cannot change, we are binding them to the past when in Jesus we ought to be loosing people. That mercy for all that has been and that hope for all that is yet to be. Therefore, if the keys to the kingdom are to be used in our hands effectively, we must see them in relationship to this incredibly good news which comes to every one of us. God is on the side of the future. God is not finished with any of us yet. If you are still breathing, that means that God has something in store for you. So the secret of binding and loosing is trusting the past to mercy and looking to the future in hope. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. Let us appropriate it and make it our own. Amen.